how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to episode 377, where I speak with author William Endek, who also is a psychology professor. We talk about his books over the years, analyzing films, how he kind of got into this uh, psychology meets film analysis world, why he chose two of Guillermo del Toro's movies to talk about symbolism in his recent book, when to add symbolism in your stories, how to be an analysis and film viewer like him. What the difference is in archetypes versus stereotypes, specifically in Joseph Campbell's work and how it relates to your work, and his number one piece of advice for filmmakers. It started for me uh, as a teacher. So I was a psychology, I am a psychology professor, but this is going back 21 years. I was a new psychology professor and I was trying to teach theories of personality, which is sort of the classic uh, psych psychological theories. Freud, Erickson, Carl Jung, Adler, and the students were not getting it. <laughs> From the readings, they weren't getting it because uh, if you've ever read Freud in, in the original or even uh, secondary texts, it's, it's very difficult. Uh, and I realized that the only way to understand these theories is to personalize them and to make them about real people. And movies are great because they are, they're not real people, but they seem real on the screen and you can analyze their behavior. If you make mistakes, it doesn't matter because they're not real. You're not gonna screw them up by making a bad psychoanalysis. So I just got into the habit of doing film analyses in my classes to explain these psychological theories. And it kind of grew out of there. I wrote a book about film analysis and then um, Ken Lee suggested I do the same thing except flip it. So instead of uh, analyzing films, uh, taking these ideas from films and uh, projecting them onto screenwriters and saying, you can use these uh, techniques that other filmmakers used in your films to create more psychologically complex characters. Have things gotten, uh, and, and maybe you're just focusing on film, have, has things gotten more accurate and more helpful as we've gone to television and seen longer arcs and limited series and some of those things as far as the true analysis of a character over a lifetime? Analysis is an art. It's, a, it's the art of interpretation. So um, there is no truth in analysis. There is no truth in psychology to a very large extent. Psychology is very largely a philosophical field. And the attempt to make it scientific um, has merits, but those merits are not apparent in the filmmaking process. There, there's, there should be no truth in film. <laughs> film is for entertainment. Film is to learn from, but that does have, that learning has nothing to do with truth. Uh, so in terms of like the characters that I'm seeing in their 100 hour character arcs, they're just as fictional as they've always been, which is how they should be. So tell me about, is this a, this is your second edition. What's kind of different from the first edition, second edition? What's the book about? Okay. So uh, the book, uh, the first edition was about taking these classic uh, theories from Freud, Erickson, Carl Jung, um, Joseph Campbell, uh, Rollo May, that's most of them. Uh, so applying these uh, theories uh, to the process of screenwriting. 
Uh, so in each chapter, I use a lot of different examples from different films to say, um, give examples of the Freudian defense mechanism, for examples of Jungian archetypes. Uh, uh, so what I did for the second edition was I uh, cut it down by 30%. So I took a lot of, I guess, what you might consider fluff or things that were a little bit redundant, took all that out, and I added uh, three chapters. Uh, now, those new three chapters are not new theorists because there really aren't new theorists in psychology. There hasn't been an important new theory in psychology in about 50 or 60 years. Uh, so rather than uh, uh, make stuff up, I, uh, I did three film analyses of different genres. Uh, so basically, you could say these new three chapters are each on the psychology of genre, with one focusing on fantasy, the other on science fiction, and a third on the Western. So you picked two of those from Guillermo del Toro. Is there a, a reason for that? Is he specifically, you know, in depth at going into the psychology of the mind? Yeah, absolutely. So it wasn't an accident. Um, I mean, we were thinking about uh, doing a Spanish <laughs> edition, sort of launching <laughs> second edition, which um, uh, was an idea, but I didn't choose Guillermo del Toro simply because of that. His uh, movies are very, very psychologically complex, and you have to sort of see them and analyze them to believe them, just how in every single frame there is some type of psychological symbolism. There's something going on that is coming in through your senses, through your eyes, going directly into your unconscious mind, um, that's not being processed on a conscious level. So he, um, like all great filmmakers, is very, very, very much aware that film is a visual medium and that you can express a lot of symbolism in very little visual material. All you need is like an, an egg, for example, in The Shape of Water, where you have an egg that represents um, not only the, the protagonist, but also her relationship with the, uh, the co-star, uh, Amphibian Man or the Merman. Um, yeah, so uh, uh, he has a great eye for symbolism, and that's something that I appreciate as a viewer and also as somebody who analyzes film. Can you go into a little, is there an example that comes to mind? I think everyone's probably seen both of these films, but since The Shape of Water is a little bit newer, like are there some examples that come to mind of something you wrote about in the in this chapter? Okay, well, since I just mentioned it, um, Del Toro uses an egg to represent uh, the main character. I forget her name. I'm bad with names. Um, but uh, um, and, he, and it's, it is subtle until you notice it. And then once you notice it, it's not subtle at all. That's the thing about psychological symbolism is that for the most part, it goes unseen and it has an unconscious effect. But if you watch the film, you'll see that egg, uh, the egg symbol keep on reappearing. It comes, uh, the first time you notice it really is when she uses an egg timer to masturbate in the bathtub. And then later she uh, uh, brings eggs to feed to the uh, amphibian man. And it, it uh, um, and the egg, to me, represented her character, uh, because in the beginning, she's very, uh, she seemed very fragile. She's very small, and she can't speak, and she seems to be pushed around by people, so she's a very fragile, like an egg. But then the longer the story goes on, and the more she gets embroiled in this plot of saving Amphibian Man, the harder she gets, and kind of like an egg. The harder you boil them, the harder they get, until by the end of the film, she's by far the strongest person in the film. Uh, and I, you know, I, I think the egg sort of represents that. The egg represents the self. It represents a sphere of development. So there's lots of wonderful symbolism just in that one little thing that uh, Guillermo de Toro, as a brilliant writer and director, put into the script but didn't make it obvious. 
so I guess you could say part of what I'm doing with my book is taking those things that aren't obvious and making them explicit so that a director or a screenwriter can put it in their script uh, and, and create a similar effect. Do you think this, does some of this only exist kind of in, in the top level viewers and, and writers? I mean, like if you go back decades, is there always symbolism in film? Do most modern audiences pick up on these things? Or is it more about, you know, the 10th time you watch this movie, all of a sudden you realize something like, how do you kind of see this for the mass appeal? Um, for the mass appeal, it's completely unconscious. So they're watching a film like The Wizard of Oz, which is just, a film of symbols, it's just a, a, a list of symbols that you're gonna see that all represent a different part of Dorothy's psyche. And the average viewer who might be a child or just somebody who's you know, not used to watching film and analyzing it as if it were a work of art. Um, so it's all there and all has a very powerful subconscious effect, which is why people wanna watch movies over and over and over again. There's something in it that, uh, that, that they're linked to, that they're connecting with, and they might not even completely understand it them, themselves, and that's the attraction. I mean, ultimately, I'm, I'm, this, I'm, I'm getting a little bit off subject, but ultimately we're all narcissists. We're all, when we look at media, we're looking at a mirror and we're trying to see ourselves in it, uh, but we're not aware of that process. We don't like to admit that we're narcissistic. So when we see a film and there's something that jives with us, there's symbolism or a character or a bit of dialogue that gets to us and we say, wow, I, I really like that. And we don't understand why we like it, but we like it because it's, it's ourselves, it's our reflections. Oh, that looks familiar because it's me. Um, and the more, uh, the more interested you are in a film, the more of you you're seeing in that film. But again, oftentimes it's not obvious. You know, uh, the, the trick of the crystal balls, which we see a lot of times in movies, we see it in the us, the trick of the crystal ball is that you think you're looking at a window into some other dimension, but it's just a mirror and you're seeing yourself, but it's flipped a little bit. So you're not aware you're seeing yourself. So you see things that you might not normally um, uh, see in yourself. If you're talking to students and they're maybe writing a first draft, where does some of this stuff come in? Does it come in later? Like, do they, should you kind of know the character story? I don't know how much you believe in outlining it and some of those things. Like, when do you start to add the symbolism? Do you realize it as you're writing or should you know it from the very beginning? I think it depends on your process. Uh, and like you said, there's outlining. So, you know, one approach might be, well, let's get the story out first. And the story is um, explicit. And that's what the what the viewer is seeing. So there might not be any symbolism there. Uh, so that's some. So it might be something you sprinkle on later. Uh, it might be something that you might want to wait if it's any, like Del Toro who uses primary visual symbolism, and it's not in the dialogue, and it's not in the action. It's literally in the, the maison scene. It's in the background. Uh, in that case, you're probably waiting till a shooting script to put in most of the, of the symbolism. So it, it's different for everybody. But I think there's probably some core things that will come to mind uh, as you're writing it that, that have to be structural. So, for example, in Pan's Labyrinth, you have uh, uh, Captain Vidal, who's the, the sinister villain. And he's very much associated with time. What I... Uh, like the tyranny of time, the idea that we're all sort of required to do things at certain times. One o'clock, I have to do this interview and I'm locked in. And even though I might want to do something else when it's one o'clock, I have to do that, right? So this sort of tyranny of time. Uh, and he, uh, uh, so Del Toro 
puts him, he lives in a clock tower and he lives in a clock and he's always carrying his watch around. And, and, and everything, every time he does something, he looks at the clock or he somehow involves timing. Um, so that has to be obviously written into the script and Del Toro had to know that well before he got to the shooting script. So yeah, there are cer certain uh, uh, major symbolisms where you're saying the egg is, uh, uh, I think her name was Lisa, <laughs> Lisa or something, but in yeah. Butter. Uh, Lisa is the egg, and Pan's Labyrinth, Captain Ball is a clock. So finding one symbol to attach to each character is something that he does, and uh, you would definitely want to put that in your script, but you would also want to make it clear if you're not the director that this is something that symbolism needs to be subtle. If it's too obvious, then uh, the audience feels that they, uh, they're, they're being pandered to, and um, they don't like it. <laughs> Is it is it in pretty much everything that gets made today? Like, do you ever watch a film and there's not really a, enough symbolism there, and it almost like it feels like something's missing to you? Yeah, I think that um, so, sometimes there's this sort of uh, lack of appreciation for the depth of film, and it might have something to do with the the digital digital media, because when film was a physical medium, it was very much like. Uh, uh, a portrait or a landscape painted by painter where you know there's layer upon layer upon layer being added to to uh, um, to this visual demonstration whereas in the age of digital media everything is so quick you know there's no physical medium so it's all about you know, getting the image quick getting the movement quick getting it all down there and there's such a rush to production a rush to get this on the market and get it streaming that uh, we sort of you, you forget uh, all the layering that needs to go on to make it seem dense, to make it seem substantial. So I think on the one hand, yes, I think we're seeing a lot of um, shows and especially movies. Television shows traditionally didn't need depth. They do now because they're competing with the film market. Um, essentially film market and the television market are one and the same. It's all been subsumed by digital media and streaming media. Uh, but back to the point is, yeah, I think we're seeing a lot more stuff that's being made very, very quickly, and so therefore cannot have that density. But also we're seeing the classic movies made by these by great directors like Wes Anderson and Guillermo del Toro, people who studied the classics, people who know what they're doing and who aren't rushed because they're incredibly successful so they can take as much time as they want. So uh, basically what we're seeing is a huge variety and you know, similar to what we've been seeing in film for the past hundred years, that there are the great films, which are of course packed with symbolism because they're made by brilliant filmmakers who want to fill every frame with something meaningful. And then of course, at the same time, there are the films that feel rather empty because they're not meant to be great films. They're just meant to be sort of slick, fun, entertainment for the moment. Mm. There's always gonna be the films that last for the ages and the films that last for the, for the day. If a, if a modern writer is trying to come up with like their own set of rules for his genre, um, you write about the, the Western genre, which has somewhat went away compared to what it used to be. It's maybe gone towards more sci-fi. Like you've mm -hmm. write about the Western genre and also science fiction. Where do you see like Star Wars and where do some of those rules, like it seems like the Mandalorian is it, is it just depends on like what's mostly there if you're trying to do an analysis yourself. <laughs> the Mandalorian was a wonderful show. I was watching it. Um, uh, I'm forgetting the director's name. Um, uh, for, um, John Favreau. John Favreau, uh, and he, he's made. He's a wonderful director as well. I mean, it's it, it's great to sort of be at an age where I am, where I can uh, 
remember when these direct, when, when, I can remember when John Favreau was on Friends, you know, <laughs> see him developing, he made Elf, and it was like, wow, that's a pretty good, you know, debut film. Um, uh, so, uh, so I was like, all right, John Favreau, I, I respect him as a writer and a director. Let's see what he does with The Mandalorian. And he did what a great thing which is he made it a western and he made it a classic western in the same way that star wars was a classic western but he made it more of a western than star wars and if you watch those first two seasons i don't know if the third season is out yet i think it's going to be another year but uh the first two seasons each episode is um a classic western and it's um it's kind of each one is like an ode to a classic Western film. You see The Magnificent Seven a couple of times. You see The Searchers a couple of times. You see um, uh, so, sort of the, all the classic archetypes of the West. You know, the, the, the Marshall character who's conflicted, uh, the outlaw character, the um, a sort of the cattle baron, the evil cattle baron who's trying to dominate everything. That's the emperor and the, the Werner Herzog character. So yeah, you see, um, uh, you see all the elements of the Western being portrayed perfectly in these great homages. That was the word I was looking for. These homages to the classic Westerns, which um, are new to people. M most people haven't seen the 1962 version of Magnificent Seven. Most people haven't seen the 1956 version of The Searchers. Most people haven't seen the 1948 version of The Three Godfathers, which the whole series is basically an homage to. Uh, so yeah, uh, it was fun for me to watch those episodes and say, oh, this is, the, this, this is the specific Western he's doing, and he's doing a great job. And it's completely new to 99% of the viewers, probably. You, so you, wrote, you wrote about Joseph Campbell as well. I've talked to Chris Fogler a little bit about this, who also mm -hmm. writes in depth about uh, Joseph Campbell's work. When a film goes against the grain, when they don't give the audience that big thing that they want at the very end, um, yeah. can that work or does it not work? Like, how do you see that? Is it just like you're, are you already leaning towards an indie film versus a blockbuster if you don't give them the big finish? Well, um, just to sp speak briefly about Joseph Campbell and why he's in the book at all, because mm -hmm. he's not a psychologist. Joseph Campbell uh, was a mythologist or a study of, he studied the classics. Uh, and his knowledge of the classics, of, of mythology and classic literature was beyond encyclopedic. So when you, uh, and he, but he was also, uh, he, he studied social, uh, social sciences and psychology. So if you read The Hero with a Thousand Faces, it's a psychology book. He's quoting Freud, he's quoting Carl Jung. Uh, Joseph Campbell himself was a scholar on Carl Jung and he edited uh, the sort of dominant book, uh, uh, the collection of Carl Jung's work, The Portable Jung. Um, so he, uh, he does take a psychological approach to, uh, to, to, to this mythological pattern. And the mythological pattern is an entire life story beginning before the birth of the hero with the prophecy of the birth of the hero. And it ends after the death of the hero with the hero who's now a legacy and a legend. Uh, so that classic structure generally cannot be done in a film um, because it's too long. And also generally, if there's a hero, we don't wanna see the hero die at the end. So the typical uh, adaptation of uh, the hero's journey does, um, ends with the hero sort of two thirds of the way through his journey. <laughs> he's sort of accomplished everything he needs to accomplish and he's at its height and we don't see the downfall. Or if we do see it, it's very quickly done in sort of a final scene. Uh, yeah, so there is a sort of a sense of incompleteness in every, in almost every movie that follows the Joseph Campbell model. That being said, um, 
you can still sort of get the sense uh, of all uh, every stage of the hero's pattern from like a movie like Braveheart or Gladiator, where the hero actually does die in the end. So you have that classical pattern. And even though there are things that might seem like they're missing out, it doesn't matter because as long as you have the general shape of the hero's pattern, and as long as you have the basic message, it's going to come across whether the whether the hero actually dies at the end or you know almost dies and then you know somehow miraculously comes back to life. Those are sort of little tidbits, uh, little details that don't really matter much. But the main thing is that the car- uh, the people in the audience have to identify with that hero on the screen, and what audiences are going to identify with is going to change from generation to generation. So even though there is this pattern, it's not a a pattern that can just be repeated uh, or stereotyped again and again and again and again. Get to the difference between an archetype and a stereotype. An archetype is a a symbol that has shared meaning so that everybody could look at this symbol, say it's the American flag or say it's the wicked witch or the Frankenstein monster. Everybody could look at that symbol and say, aha, I kind of get what that's about, as opposed to a stereotype, which is literally the same exact thing <laughs> over and over and over again, uh, the, same, the same mask. So the fact that we have, you know, 100 Frankenstein movies, the Frank, uh, from those 100 Frankenstein movies, we don't get an archetype, we get a stereotype. What are you, I'm looking at one of the, the previous interviews you did with Creative Screenwriting, I think it was 2015. One of the answers you, you gave was, film gives us the opportunity to put our minds in the brain of another person and also try to understand people through that person's eyes. I think this is referred to as um, third order theory of mind. Mm-hmm. How, how important do you see this today? It seems like we've really gone towards like making more minority-based films, um, lesser known you know, people and that should be main characters now, as opposed to, you know, the typical white guy hero, which was forever right. and ever and ever. How important is that? And can you kind of explain that a little bit more, the third or third order theory of mind? Oh, uh, yeah. I, I don't even really like those terms anymore, but, uh, <laughs> and it comes, uh, it really comes from the study of, of autism, trying to figure out why some people are good at getting into other people's point of view and other people, Famously, people with autism are not that good at that. Uh, so the idea is uh, the first order theory of mind is just our own awareness that we have our own minds that's different from other people's. The second order theory of mind is me understanding, okay, well, you have a mind just like I have a mind. And therefore, you don't necessarily understand what I'm talking about unless I explain it to you. And then the third order theory of mind is me being able to understand that you know, my mind is understands that you have a mind and it's going to be reflecting, reflecting back on me or reflecting on something else. So uh, for instance, in social media, most people spend most of the time in a third order theory of mind, meaning they're spend, they're trying to figure out what other people are thinking about them, <laughs> right? So that's social media. But when we flip that into uh, uh, a, a, an entertainment medium like film, we also have third order theory of mind. But when you're in that character's head, you're not reflecting out of the screen and thinking, you know, what is the viewer thinking or what am I thinking? You're really seeing the world from that character's point of view. And if you can get uh, your audience thinking that way, thinking, what's the hero going to do now? Because the hero is me. Well, then you've made that crucial connection. You've made the uh, audience identify with your hero and they're experiencing the same thing. And that's the key to getting people to watch your movie. Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with the plot. I mean, obviously the plot's important, but it has everything to do with the character that you're writing. If 
people can identify with that character, then they're going to like that movie. And for a hundred years or so, a lot of people haven't been able to completely identify with characters because they're a different color or they're a different uh, gender or they're a different uh, type of person. Um, what does that mean? Well, it means if you want that, let's say you're a, a black child and all you see are white heroes, it means you have two choices. You can either uh, not watch those movies um, we have more than two choices. <laughs> you can either not watch those movies and only watch movies that are specifically made with black heroes, which for most of the past 100 years have been, you know, virtually none. Um, or you can watch those movies and identify with that character and thereby become white for a little while. I mean, you're, because you have to identify with this white character, part of you, you know, a very real part of your mind is white for those two hours. And maybe that's an, an unfair expectation. Uh, and maybe nobody has ever really, you know, put it that way, but we are forcing, we're not forcing people because it's voluntary whether you want to watch a movie or not. So, uh, but people are being encouraged to wear the mask of another person while they're watching a film. Uh, and, and I think uh, using that argument, I would say it does make sense to have more people of color in film uh, so that there's more people, uh, more heroes that uh, audience members can identify with. At the same time, there's a problem. If you have a character um, who's a cast um, by an actor for political reasons, as opposed to, well, that actor fits that character very well, then you have a lot of people watching that and saying, there's something wrong with that character. I can't identify with that character. I don't know what it is and I'm not racist, but there's something about that character that I just can't identify with. Why? Because he or she is misplaced or miscast and something was, when, when you try to force a character into a role, um, there's always going to be that pushback and sometimes it doesn't work. Like, uh, for instance, um, when I talk about John Wayne, uh, you know, uh, in some of my favorite movies, people often, oh, John Wayne, he was the worst actor. Of course, yeah, he could only do one type, but he could do that type so well that he became that type. So being a great movie star has nothing to do with acting. It has to do with your persona, with this charisma, with this star quality that you could bring into a role. I mean, obviously there's uh, there are a lot of great actors in film, but to be a star, you don't need to be a great actor. And I think that's been established, you know, through John Wayne, like John Wayne, Mark Wahlberg. You know, if you can play a great type and embody that type, then you are that character. And then, but in that place, the flip side as well, meaning if you cast somebody who's a great actor, but he's not that type and he can't be that type for whatever reason, then you're at, instead of reeling the audience in, you're pushing them away. Hmm. So, yeah, so, so there is a real danger in this sort of new way that uh, characters are being cast. I think we're almost out of time. I just want to uh, do more. If there's anything we missed about the book you'd like to say, you know, please feel free to do so. And also, um, this may, I don't know if this is from the book per se, or more maybe from your class. If, if someone uh, reading this article, listening to this, if they could walk away with an exercise, is there an exercise in mind to, to start getting a little bit better today about the psychology of characters? I would say um, oftentimes there's this sort of hubris that writers have, but I have it too. And the hubris is, I know everything I need to know in my head. And, uh, and I just need to get in touch with that. But the fact is, uh, it's not true. There's a lot that's out there that you have to understand. Um, and, and oftentimes uh, I find, you know, uh, I'm not, 
I'm, I'm not a huge consultant. It's not a big part of my business. I'm a psychology professor. So I, I don't advertise on social media, but every once in a while, someone reaches out to me um, to, to consult on their screenplay. And one thing I notice is that their knowledge of film history and their knowledge of films that are very, very similar, sometimes exactly to the film they're writing is nil. They haven't watched the movies. And that is kind of like, you want to be a novelist, but you haven't read any novels. <laughs> I, you know, it, and, and it always makes me curious. It's kind of like, well, why do you want to even write for this genre or write for this medium that you don't even seem to be particularly you know, uh, interested in if you, you know, if you haven't seen that movie or haven't seen that director? Uh, so what I would encourage students to do is, uh, if, regardless of what you're writing, is to watch some really, really good movies and to take notes. Uh, there's a difference between just viewing a movie and analyzing it really watching it. And um, uh, what I was teaching my students in my film analysis class is that sort of deep analysis of, you know, pause, pause the frame and look in that frame and, and, and identify all the symbols just within that one frame and really break it down like you're analyzing a piece of literature or a classic painting by a, 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 a classic artist. Um, study, uh, study watching film first and then focus on writing and making films. Perfect. Thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it. Sure. I just want one last, uh, um, watch The Mandalorian, because that's you'll see what John Favreau is doing. Watch The Magnificent Seven, and then watch The Mandalorian. <laughs> watch The Shirkers or The Three Godfathers. Watch those classic Westerns, and then watch The Mandalorian, and you'll see exactly what I mean. If you're very well-versed in a particular genre or in a medium such as film in general, it's going to come out in your work. It's going to inform your work and it's not copying. There's no such thing as copying. <laughs> it's an homage. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the show. So many great lessons on screenwriting there. If you're looking for some more information though, some more about the craft of writing for television, uh, we have a new chorus called Script Mastermind where we have 21 of our proven experts telling you how to write for television, how to write a screenplay, how to break in, things like that. Uh, this includes shows of Gordon-Levitt, Judd Apatow, also the writers of shows like Handmaid's Tale, Mosquito Coast, Hunters, Solar Opposites, Resident Alien, WandaVision, the list goes on and on. Check that out. Uh, you can get this all right now for $1 at scriptmastermind.com slash television. That is the television screenwriting masterclass. It is at scriptmastermind.com slash television. We'll see you next time with a new episode.